book of Ezekiel. We're going to start in chapter 22. Um, about what year was Ezekiel taken captive? Anybody? Trying to get people to wake up here, not asking hard questions or anything. <laughs> All right, yeah, 597. That was the big. Uh, that was the really big captivity. Um, there was one after that down here at 586. And 586 BC is when we usually think of captivity, because that's when everybody went. <clears throat> but the people that were left were probably fewer than those that went in the days of, of Ezekiel. So for a period of about 11 years here, 597 to 586, uh, you had the people of Israel being in two places. Half of them were in captivity, the other half were back in the neighborhood of Jerusalem. And which prophet have we studied who was in Jerusalem during that 11 years? Jeremiah. Jeremiah. And, And now at the same time as Jeremiah, we have Ezekiel prophesying but they didn't see each other for the for that eleven years. In fact, didn't see it at each other afterwards either, because Jeremiah got taken to Egypt. And so, for about half the book of of Ezekiel, um, the prophecies are in this period here. He, he gives the date. He, with a lot of his prophecies, he'll give the date, and it's the year of his captivity. So from 597, you just subtract however many years it is to get the date for when the prophecy is. <coughs> but then, <coughs> excuse me, after 586, uh, he normally doesn't give us any more dates. Um, at that point, um, the prophecies are for the, the much farther distant future anyway. Now in, <coughs> in our outline... We're finishing up part two, judgment against Judah and Jerusalem, because we're in chapter 22. Um, then we'll do the section called judgment against the nations. <clears throat> and in this case, these are just the nations around about um, Judah. And then we'll get a few chapters into this fourth section, preparation for restoration. Um. All right, so judgment against Judah and Jerusalem. <clears throat> chapter 22, the sins of Israel. And boy, they're pretty bad in this in this chapter. Um, in verse three, what what sins does God accuse the people of? Shedding blood. Shedding blood, which means what? Yeah, they're murdering people. <clears throat> also mentions idols in the same verse. Just um, a very terrible time to be living in Jerusalem when you had. And later on we'll find out it was really the people who were in charge who were doing the shedding of blood. Um, In verse 6, Behold, the rulers of Israel, each according to his power, have been in you for the purpose of shedding blood. So kings, kings like King Jehoiakim, um, they were just murderers. It was just terrible. And of course they could get away with it since there wasn't anybody higher than them except God and um, they didn't care about God. Then down in verse um, 26, 
he goes through several different classes of people um, in Jerusalem and, what, and the sin of each of them. What's the first class in verse 26? The priests. The priests, yes. And what's their sin? Profane holy Yeah, profane God's holy things. And they made no distinction between the holy and the profane. They didn't teach the difference between the unclean and the clean. And they... They didn't keep a, a specific law. Which was what was that one? The Sabbaths. The Sabbaths, yeah. So they were just useless. These priests. All right. Then in the next verse, what's the next class of people? Princes. Princes. That would include the king, uh, the um, and the government. And what what were what was their sin? Murder for dishonest gain. Yeah, they were killing people just to get just to get dishonest gain. Third class, verse twenty-eight. Prophets. What was their sin? Whitewashing, covering up the sins. Yeah. Yeah. Instead of telling people what their sins were, they told the people, "Hey, you're doing fine." And then another class in verse 29. Yeah, the people of the land. What was their sin? Yeah, robbery, oppression, wronging the poor and needy, oppressing the sojourner, which would be that you know, person from another country. So what a terrible combination. So in verse 30, God says, I searched for a man among them who would build up the wall and stand in the gap before me for the land so that I would not destroy it, but I found no one. Now the wall he's talking about here obviously is symbolic, but if it was a real wall, it would be the wall around the city of Jerusalem. Because when he talks about standing in the gap, I mean, when your wall gets a hole in it, you've got to put soldiers there or the enemy's going to come marching through. And so God searched these people because there was a spiritual hole in the wall. And was there anybody who would try to repair it? Was anyone who would stand in the, in the gap? And he didn't find anybody. So the, the place is going to be destroyed. Alright, now the next chapter is titled Ahola and Aholibah. <laughs> these are kind of strange names, but um, they're, they're Hebrew words. The word ahola means my tent or my tabernacle. It's based upon the Hebrew word that is often translated tabernacle. Um, and the... I said my tent. That doesn't sound right. Her tent, sorry. Yeah. Ahola means her tent. Aholiba means my tent is in her. And if you think of the tent as, as representing the tabernacle or ultimately the, the temple, then if he calls Ahola her tent, what he's saying is that they had their own temple, but it wasn't my temple, God is saying. And Aholibah, the one who represents Judah, God's tent was in her. Um, his, his temple was in her. However... It didn't seem to make, make, make much difference in this chapter as to whether God's tent was in them or not. That their behavior was just uh, horrible. Um, now, he, he's comparing these two nations, the northern nation of Israel called Ahola, the southern nation of Judah called Aholibah, and he compares them to women. Uh, he says, Son of man, there were two women, in verse 2, the daughters of one mother. 
And they played the harlot in Egypt. And they, they played the harlot in their youth. There their breasts were pressed and there their virgin bosom was handled. Their names were Ahola the elder and Holibah her sister. And they became mine and they bore sons and daughters. And as for their names, Samaria is Ahola and Jerusalem is Aholibah. So they represent women. Now we've had before in, in this book and in some of the other prophets, the people of God represented as a woman and what was specific about the woman? Right. The woman was married to God. That was, that was the, the key point. And, of course, in each case, the woman is being unfaithful. She's committing adultery. And adultery represents idolatry. Either you're married to God, you're faithful to God, or you're worshiping other gods, meaning you're, you're committing adultery. You're, and so that's why he calls these two women harlots, because they're going after false gods, even though they're married to the true God. So in verse 5, Ahola played the harlot while she was mine, and she lusted after her lovers, after the Assyrians, her neighbors. And so she went after, she, she made a covenant with the Assyrians, political alliance, but also worshiped the Assyrian gods. Um, then in verse 9, Therefore I gave her into the hand of her lovers, into the hand of the Assyrians after whom she lusted. And as you, as you recall, the Assyrians were the ones that carried the northern kingdom captive. That was their punishment for their spiritual adultery. Then we switch to the southern kingdom. In verse 11, Now her sister Aholibah saw this, yet she was more corrupt in her lust than she, and her harlotries were more than the harlotries of her sister, she lusted after the Assyrians, governors and officials, the once near, magnificently dressed horsemen riding on a horse, all of them desirable young men. And there was this time in the history of Judah when they, they made an alliance with Assyria, and when they, they copied the Assyrian gods, they put an, a, an altar right in the temple, a pattern after the, after the Assyrian altar that, they, that the king found in Damascus. But the Assyrians weren't the only ones. In verse 14, so she increased her harlotries and she saw men portrayed on the wall images of the Chaldeans portrayed with vermilion. Now who are the Chaldeans? Yeah, they're, they're Babylonians. and They're the ones they had to make the alliance with after that. They were kind of forced into it. But then they went in and worshipped their gods and just behaved worse and worse. So in verse 18, she uncovered her harlotries and uncovered her nakedness. Then I became disgusted with her as I had become disgusted with her sister. In verse 22, Therefore, O Halibah, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will arouse your lovers against you from whom you were alienated, and I will bring them against you from every side. Of course, this is a prediction of the Babylonians coming to take them captive. And then in verse 30, These things will be done to you because you have played the harlot with the nations because you have defiled yourself with their idols. I haven't read all the... I don't have time, of course, to read all the verses, but some of these verses are really pretty coarse. And I think God is trying to show them just the shocking nature of their sins. People today look at those who practice idols as, you know, well, that's... Interesting. That's kind of the way they look at it. God looks at it and says, that's as bad as adultery. It's as bad as a wife that just goes around and becomes a prostitute cheating on her husband. Um, 
And so this was just another attempt that God was making to try to get the people's attention. Um, over and over trying to show them, you know, what you're doing is really very, very bad. And then the last chapter in this section, uh, the judgments against Judah and Jerusalem, is titled The Parable of the Boiling Pot. Um, and he gives a date for it. The word of the Lord came to me in the ninth year, in the tenth month, on the tenth of the month, saying, Son of man, write the name of the, the day, this very day. The king of Babylon has laid siege to Jerusalem this very day. Now, of course, the people that, where Ezekiel was didn't know this because it would take several months for the news to travel back from Jerusalem all the way back to where they were in Babylon. But God was giving him this instant news. And, and now He wants him to speak a parable. In verse 3, Speak a parable to the rebellious house and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Put on the pot. Put it on. And also put water in it. And He goes on, What does this pot represent? It represents the city of Jerusalem, yeah. So when he puts meat in it, that represents the people who are in the city. And he's going to cook them. In verse 6, Therefore thus says the Lord God, Woe to the bloody city, to the pot in which there is rust, and whose rust has not gone out of it. Take out of it piece after piece without making a choice. God doesn't, doesn't care who gets cooked. Everybody's going to get cooked in this pot. They're all guilty. In verse 9, Therefore thus says the Lord God, Woe to the bloody city, I also will make the pile great. Heap on the wood, kindle the fire, boil the flesh well, and mix in the spices, and let the bones be burned. Then set it empty on its coal, so that it may be hot, and its bronze may glow, and its filthiness may be melted in it, its rust consumed. Fire, in the Bible, very often represents judgment. And that's what, what this is about. The judgment on Jerusalem because of these people's Extreme wickedness. Now, in verse 16, the, the scene changes a little bit. Son of man, behold, I am about to take from you the desire of your eyes with a blow, but you shall not mourn, and you shall not weep, and your tears shall not come. What's he talking about? His wife's going to die. Now, we've asked the question before hey, how many of you would like to be Ezekiel? And I didn't get any takers last week, and I don't guess we're going to get any this week either. This is just so such a difficult thing. In fact, name me any prophet in the Old Testament you would like to be. Every one of them went through terrible suffering in order to proclaim to the people God's will. And so, why would God do something so horrible to Ezekiel as to kill his wife and tell him he can't mourn for her? Well, it's a picture of God's relationship with the treacherous His people. Yeah, so many people are going to be dying in Jerusalem that there's, no one's going to have time to mourn for them. And even the people that are in captivity, they, they have friends and relatives back home, but there's going to be so many of them dying, there's no way they can have funerals for these people. Um, and, and that's what Ezekiel tells the people. He says, I'm assigned to you. you know, what's happening to me is going to happen to you uh, not, not too very long from now. And then in verse 26, On that day he who escapes will come to you with information for your ears. On that day your mouth will be opened to him who escaped, and you will speak and be mute no longer. Thus you will be assigned to them, and they will know that I am the Lord. And remember how God has made Ezekiel unable to talk, 
except for the times when he has a revelation and then he has then he's allowed to talk and say that, but then after that he can't talk again. But when the news finally comes that the city has fallen, see this is just the news that the that the siege had begun and the siege lasted a couple of years. When the news comes that it's fallen, then he'll be able to talk again. And that will be a, a, a sign to the people that this really was God's prophet. Alright, so now the next section, chapter 25-32, is judgment against the nations. And we begin with chapter 25, judgment on Ammon, Moab, Edom, and Philistia. And I'll start reading in verse 2. Son of man, set your face toward the sons of Ammon and prophesy against them. And say to the sons of Ammon, Hear the word of the Lord God. Thus says the Lord God, because you said, Aha, against my sanctuary when it was profane, and against the land of Israel when it was made desolate, and against the house of Judah when they went into exile. Therefore, behold, I am going to give you to the sons of the east for a possession, and they will set their encampments among you and make their dwellings among you. They will eat your fruit and drink your milk. So what was their sin? They gloated over the desperate situation of God's people. Yeah, they gloated. When the Babylonians captured Jerusalem, they gloated. Ah, this is great. We're so happy about this. And God says, okay, then you're going to have the same thing happen to you too. Now, here is the map. Jerusalem is, is of course, about all that was left of of God's people, people in Judah at this time. East of there is Ammon. And the south of Ammon is Moab. And Moab is the next one in this chapter to receive judgment. Then um, south of that is Edom. And then west of Jerusalem is Philistia. So all on three, three sides here we have judgment happening to these nations. And then after in the next chapter we'll have the fourth side up to the north. Now, what nation today would Ammon be in? Jordan. Jordan, yeah. Same for Moab, same for Edom. Uh, uh, the Jordan goes all covers from you know this east bank all the way down and hits the Dead Sea. Um, Philistia, on the other hand, that's um, um, it's part of the Palestinian territory today. Oh, because. That's it. Yeah, Gaza Strip, because Gaza was one of the main uh, cities uh, in in of, of the Philistines. Um, so I won't read about all these issues. But let me jump down to Edom, verse twelve. Thus says the Lord God, because Edom has acted against the house of Judah by taking vengeance, and has incurred grievous guilt, and avenged themselves upon them. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, I will also stretch out my hand against Edom and cut off man and beast from it. And I will lay it waste from Teman even to Dedan. They will fall by the sword. Now we've had judgments prophesied against Edom before, and we're going to have one again after this. It, 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 at times, and we're going to see this in the next time, Edom kind of represents all the enemies of God's people. It just seems like they were the, they were the worst of these four, in the near ones, because of their, the way they were taking vengeance against um, the people who originally had been their brother. Remember Esau and Jacob were brothers. Alright, so um, then chapter 26, judgment on Tyre. Um, and we've got several chapters of Tyre. And I'll show you the map. We're moving north. This map is actually part of the previous map, but it's 
We've shifted the whole thing north. Jerusalem would be down here off the bottom. You see Samaria there. Well, this rain, this area here called Phoenicia is the part that Tyre is in. And he's going to mention both Tyre and Sidon in these chapters. In fact, at one point he mentions a city named Gebel, the Gebelites, and that was they were from the city of Byblos. Um, but they're, they're minor place. Tyre is the big one. Uh, what was the business of, the, of Tyre? Uh, trade and ships. Yeah, they were great sh- uh, shipping people. They, they, they built ships here and sent them all over the Mediterranean. Um, even past the Straits of Gibraltar, they, they, they had at least one port is mentioned here, all the way past the Straits of Gibraltar. They mentioned Tarshish, which is in a city in Spain. Um, they, they were the founders of Carthage in North Africa, which was the famous enemy of Rome. Uh, the, they had sent out, they had colonies in various places around the Mediterranean. Um, they, they were, um, they were rich. They were, they really were, were well off. And um, yet they're going to be brought down. Verse three: Say to Tyre, who dwells at the entrance to the sea, merchant of the people, peoples to many coastlands. Thus says the Lord God. O Tyre, you have said, I am perfect in beauty. Your borders are in the heart of the seas. Your builders have perfected your beauty. See, that, that, this is typical of any, any nation that's doing well. They, they get lifted up in it with pride. And, and, and that was one of their major sins. So, um, in verse 5, let me see here. You know, I jumped to chapter. No, people are probably very confused. I was reading for chapter twenty-seven, also on Tyre. I go back to chapter twenty-six. Son of man, because Tyre is said concerning Jerusalem, aha, the gateway of the peoples is broken. It is open to me. I shall be filled now that she is laid waste. Therefore, thus says the Lord God: Behold, I am against you, O Tyre, and I will bring up many nations against you, as the sea brings up its waves. They will destroy the walls of Tyre and bring down her towers, and I will scrape her debris from her and make her a bare rock. In verse 5, She will be a place for the spreading of nets in the midst of the sea, for I have spoken, declares the Lord God, and she will become spoil for the nations. This is one of the, a, a very famous prophecy in the Old Testament. Some of you may be familiar with this. Um, very interesting story. Uh, Tyre was... Um, there were actually two parts to Tyre, which you can't see in this map because they're so close together. But there was a mainland Tyre which was was not a very well defended city. Um, and then offshore, just a little bit offshore, not very far, was an island. And that city was very, very well defended. Um, and I have an artist's picture of what that looked like way back there. The walls were 150 feet high. And you may not be able to see it in this in this picture, but look at these ships here compared to these walls. I mean, this is this is huge. Um, now, this is an island. We're, we're looking south in this view. I wish the view included the rest of the island because there's a harbor here. This is the South Harbor, but there's also a North Harbor. And today, the South Harbor has been all silted up and it's not used anymore, but the North Harbor still exists. When... Uh, and, and if you read, uh, well, of course you read these chapters, but who was the big enemy who was going to conquer Tyre in these chapters? 
Nebuchadnezzar, yes. And in fact, he did spend several years besieging them. But the problem he had, it was very easy for him to take the, the part of Tyre that was on the, the shore. But of course, all those people immediately left their houses, hopped in boats, and, went, and they were behind these walls by the time Nebuchadnezzar arrived. So you know, he, he, he could you know, burn the city down, but he didn't have a navy. And without a navy, he had no way of, of attacking the island fortress. So he cut them off, but they weren't really cut off because they had ships coming in, coming and going all the time. So you know they could hold out indefinitely from from a siege from the shore. And so after several years, um, he he made a deal with them: you pay me tribute, and I'll leave. So they paid him tribute, and he left. So he didn't fulfill the verses we just read. Move forward a hundred years or more. Somewhere closer to 200, I guess. Alexander the Great comes marching along. He's going to conquer the world. He goes down and conquers Egypt, comes back. I think he did this on the way back. Um, he wants Tyre. And he had a navy because um, he'd conquered someplace as it ships. So he was able to blockade them from the sea as well as from the land. But the other trick he did, he took all those houses that were built out of cut stone on the mainland, tore them down, and put all the rocks in the water and built a causeway. And then his soldiers could just march right up to the walls, and he conquered the city, and he completely destroyed the whole thing, tore the whole thing down. And this is a picture today of what it looks like. Here's the island. The causeway was built somewhere along there, I believe. And, and once the causeway was done, then the, the, they it tended to silt up in both directions, so it's, it's, it's much wider now than it was when he built it. He, he built it wide enough to get a few, sold, you know, a few soldiers abreast to get across. But, um, and this, this harbor is the, uh, the north harbor that is still used today, and the south harbor, is, you can see it's all silted up there. Um, and as I said, it's going to be a place for... <coughs> spreading of nets in the midst of the sea, that part of it, what was once Tyre is now this little fishing village where they spread their nets on the rocks that were once the great city of Tyre. Now, Ezekiel doesn't tell us it's going to be Alexander the Great. He just says it's going to happen. And he mentions Nebuchadnezzar, but ultimately, Nebuchadnezzar did. He tried, but Alexander finished the job. Alright, so... We could continue with Tyre. We have the, in chapter 27 the lament over Tyre, which that was when I got ahead and read about their pride. Um, in verse 12, Tarsus was your customer because of the substance of all kinds of wealth. With silver, iron, tin, and lead, they paid for your wares. Tarsus is about as far as away as you could get. Remember, that's where. Um, who's the famous prophet that wanted to go to Tarsus? Jonah. Jonah, yeah, bought a ticket to Tarshish because he wanted to get away from him. <clears throat> um, and he go and the the whole chapter is just a list of you're just telling about their customers and all their wares they were getting. They they were just so rich. And then in verse twenty nine, just kind of jumping in the middle here, all who handle the oar, the sailors and all the pilots of the sea will come down from their ships. They will stand on the land, and they will make their voice heard over you. They will cry bitterly. They will cast dust on their heads. They will wallow in ashes. 
They're just sad because they needed Tyre. Tyre was the way they were making themselves rich. Now, this picture in this chapter is taken up later on uh, and used in another place in the Bible. Anyone know where that is? Revelation. Revelation, that's right. In Revelation chapter 18, um, the lament that people have over Babylon in the book of Revelation comes right out of this chapter. It, it's, it, it's, a, it's like John was just kind of reading the chapter as he wrote that. <laughs> it, it really, you, you can recognize it all the way through. Well, more on Tyre. Chapter 28, Judgment on the King of Tyre. Um, in verse 2, Son of man, say to the leader of Tyre, thus says the Lord God, because your heart is lifted up and you have said, I am a God. I sit in the seat of gods in the heart of the seas, yet you are a man and not God, although you make your heart like the heart of God. He's, again, he's being brought down because of his pride. Um, in verse 5, By your great wisdom, by your trade, you have increased your riches and your heart is lifted up because of your riches. Well, what nation on earth today would you say um, would have this attitude about itself? Well, the, the attitude that, you know, by my great wisdom, I have increased my riches. Yeah, it's a, we're the ones today. We're, we're the tire of the 21st century. Same attitude exactly. Anytime people, anytime people get rich, they always think it was themselves that did it. You know, it's because I was so smart. And oftentimes that, that attitude is even expressed in an attitude toward the poor, you know. If they weren't so lazy, they'd, they'd be like I am. Rich. <laughs> um, verse 9, Will you still say, I am a God in the presence of your slayer, though you were a man and not God in the hands of those who wound you? Now in, um, in verse 12, he has another lamentation. He says, Take up a lamentation over the king of Tyre. Two different words are used. In verse 2, it was the leader of Tyre. In verse 12, it's the king of Tyre. And the language gets more extreme even in, in the second with the second lament. Um, in verse 13, you were in Eden, the garden of God. I mean, <laughs> wow, you know, this, this is great. And a lot of people have taken this second one to be ultimately talking about Satan, who was the one behind the king of Tyre. And they, and they take this as indicating, as telling how Satan fell from from God's grace by His sin in the very beginning. I'm not convinced it is talking about that, but I'll mention that because a lot of the stories you hear about you know, how Satan was a, is a fallen angel and things like that comes from this section. This is really where it comes from. There's no, the, the word Satan is ever found here, but there's no passage in the, in the Bible that I know of that says this, these things about Satan. So if you don't have this, you basically don't have much about the history of Satan. Which... God doesn't have to give us the history of Satan <laughs> if He doesn't want to. Alright, so that's, that's the third chapter on Tyre. Now, in chapter 29, we start in on Egypt. And um, in verse 3, Speak and say, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, Pharaoh, king of Egypt, the great monster that lies in the midst of his rivers that has said, My Nile is mine, and I myself have made it. Well, what was it that made Egypt rich and powerful? 
Yeah, it was the Nile River. Without the Nile, they'd be a desert. And with the Nile, they were wealthy. They could they could export grain to other places, um, and make make themselves a lot of money. And again, just like with Tyre, everybody thinks they did it themselves. Hey, we built the Nile ourselves. Of course, that's absolute foolishness. But this is the attitude people have, and uh, you know, America is wealthy in good part because of all these natural resources that God put into this land long before Columbus came here. And yet, you know, we look with pride on on anyone that doesn't have our kind of wealth, and you know, well, they're just pathetic. <laughs> There'll come a time when God will judge this nation because of that very attitude. God, God doesn't put up with pride. Um, now verse 6 then all the inhabitants of Egypt will know that I am the Lord because they have been only a staff made of reed to the house of Israel now this is this talks about the time when the people of Jerusalem went to Egypt said hey would you help us against Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians Egypt said sure you know when he comes we'll send our army and we'll, we'll protect you and it says when they took hold of you with a, so he pictures them with a staff they're a walking stick a reed and when they took hold of you with the hand, you broke and tore all their hands. And when they leaned on you, you broke and made all their loins quake. So, the only thing worse than not having a walking stick is having a walking stick that breaks when you lean on it. <laughs> and that was what Egypt was. This bruised reed um, is called. And so then in verse 15, the prophecy of Egypt is that it will be the lowest of the kingdoms. And it will never again lift itself up above the nations, and it will make them so small that they will not rule over the nations. Now, Egypt had been the world empire, the world empire, for many years. At this point, they weren't the top. Babylon was the top, but they were still right up there. But now God is predicting the times that come when they won't rule over anybody but themselves. They'll just be the lowest of kingdoms. Has that happened? <laughs> That's exactly what you see today. Um, so we've seen several prophecies here in this book of Ezekiel that have been fulfilled in great detail. Verse 18, Son of man, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, made his army labor hard against Tyre. This is what I told you about earlier. Um, every head was made bald and every shoulder was rubbed bare, but he and his army had no wages from Tyre for the labor that he had performed against it because they didn't conquer the city. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will give the land of Egypt to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and he will carry off her wealth and capture her spoil and seize her plunder, and it will be wages for his army. So God is saying, you know, I appreciate what they've done. I'm sorry they didn't get any money out of it. I'll pay them uh, with Egypt. They can just go on down there and, and take all the wealth out of Egypt. <laughs> and no mention about the fact that, hey, well, what about this prophecy? You know, what about that Tyre's going to become a bare rock? When God makes prophecies, they come true. It didn't matter whether Nebuchadnezzar couldn't do the job. God's prophecy was going to stand and it has now, of course, been fulfilled. So then, after judgment on Egypt, we have a lament over Egypt. This is like laments we've done before. I'm not going to spend any time on it. But, um, and then, chapter 31, Pharaoh will be brought down like Assyria was. In verse 2, Son of man, say to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and to his hordes, Whom are you like in your greatness? Well, before him, who had been before 
this time, who what nation had been a great world empire? Sure. Yeah, the Assyrians. So in verse 3, Behold, Assyria was a cedar in Lebanon with beautiful branches and forest shade and very high, and its top was among the clouds. Uh, what happened to Assyria? Yeah, they got cut down. Assyria was not an empire at the time this, this is being written. So Assyria is being used as an object lesson to Pharaoh to say, you know, the very highest of the high can be brought down by God. So you think you're like Assyria. Well, look what happened to Assyria. So that's sort of the message of that chapter. I don't have any more to cover there. Um, and then there's some more laments in chapter 32. Laments over Pharaoh and Egypt. And I'll leave that as well. Um, I think it's easy enough. You read it, it's probably easy enough to understand. So now we go to the fourth section of the book called Preparation for Restoration. We won't finish that section um, this morning, but next week we'll finish that section and the next. We're supposed to finish the whole book next week. Um, so chapter 33, and I've had to split this because the two pieces are too different from each other. The first 20 verses is the duty of a watchman. Now, a physical watchman in those days was not a watchman at a factory. What was he a watchman for? For the city, the city walls. Yeah, he, he watches for the enemy coming. Of course, they didn't have you know, telephones and telegraphs and satellite pictures and all that. So you basically put him in the highest tower in the city and had him watch in all directions. And then... What's he supposed to do if he sees someone coming? Yeah, hey, get the army out. Warning, warning. Um, so in verse 2, Son of man, speak to the sons of, of your people and say to them, If I bring a sword upon the land, and the people of the land take one man from among them and make him their watchman, and he sees the sword coming upon the land and blows on the trumpet and warns the people, then he, he who hears the sound of the trumpet and does not take warning, well, whose fault is that? The one who doesn't hear. Yeah, the one who refuses to take warning. Because a sword comes, takes him away, but his blood will be on his own head. He says he heard the sound, but he didn't take any warning. On the other hand, in verse 6, what if the watchman sees the sword coming, but he doesn't blow the trumpet? Then that's uh, his, it falls on him. Right. The people die, but it's his fault. And, and God says his blood will require from the watchman's hand. What's the application of this? Kind of a parable. What's the application? God's appointed prophet is to warn the people. That's his obligation. Yes. And Ezekiel, of course, is the one in, in this book. Son of man, I have appointed you a watchman for the house of Israel. So you will hear a message from my mouth and give them warning from me. So, what happens if he chooses not to give a, a message from, from God? God judges him. God judges him. What happens if he gives a message from God, but the people don't listen? Well, he's clear. At least he's clear. Of course, they still die. But he's clear. So, there's no hint in here that God says, well, if you don't think they're going to listen, don't bother to tell them. No hint about that, is there? In fact, at the very beginning of the book, God told Ezekiel, they're not going to listen to you, but you've got to tell them anyway. <laughs> and so now he's, he's making this message clear to Ezekiel. Of course, if we were in Ezekiel's shoes, we wouldn't be too keen on, on telling this message. 
Who wants to tell a message when people aren't going to hear? People don't like to hear messages that they're not going to hear. And they tend to, you know, reflect their dislike on the person giving the message. Surely all of us have had experiences of telling people things from God that they don't like. And they try to, they tend to express their displeasure back to you. And that was Ezekiel's exact problem. Of course, Ezekiel's not having as bad a time of it as Jeremiah. What did the people do with Jeremiah? Well, and then they threw him in a dungeon. You know, remember the time they threw him in the muddy pit and he sank down. And, uh, it, was, it was pretty sad. Um, so in verse 11, say to them, as I live, declares the Lord God, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back. Turn back from your evil ways. Why then will you die, O house of Israel? And that was a message that Ezekiel was supposed to give them. And then in verse 13, when I say to the righteous, he will surely live, and he so trusts in his righteousness that he commits iniquity, what's going to happen to him? He's going to die, yeah. I mean, you don't accumulate a bunch of righteousness in your life and you say, I'm covered now. I can just do whatever I want because I've got all this big... It doesn't work that way. Um, on the other hand, what if a guy's done a lot of wickedness and then he repents and, and does good? He'll live. But apparently the people didn't like this. And they said, you know, the way of the Lord is not just. And he says, no, no, it's you're, you're the ones that, that aren't just. Um, now, the, the second half of the chapter, verses 21 to the end, is news of Jerusalem's capture. The whole book's been working up toward this one point. Um, and in verse 21, in the twelfth year of our exile, on the fifth of the tenth month, the refugees from Jerusalem came to me saying, the city has been taken. Now the hand of the Lord had been upon me in the evening before the refugees came, and He opened my mouth at the time they came to me in the morning so that my mouth was opened and I was no longer speechless. And, and as far as I can tell, that's, that's the end of this, of Him not being able to talk. He's going to be able to talk from here on, I, I believe. Um, So then in verse 30, As for you, son of man, your fellow citizens who talk about you by the walls and the doorways of the houses, speak to one another, each to his brother, saying, Come now and hear what the message is which comes forth from the Lord. Ezekiel's stock has risen. I mean, the people understand. When this guy predicts something, it happens. Because for years he's been predicting this, and it finally comes to pass. Now everyone, they want to come hear him. What was the problem, though? It won't change. They won't change, yeah. Um, so, they're just coming to hear Him like you go to a concert and hear beautiful music. That's the way He's putting this. Um, what's the difference between someone who goes to hear and the, and the right kind of hearer? How can you tell the difference between the two? With their behavior. With their change. Right. It, that's exactly right. The ones who come for the right reason, are the ones that change their behavior after they leave. They don't behave like they did before. Um, are there people that come to these services here that come for the wrong reason? I expect there are. Because they don't change their behavior afterwards. Alright. Uh, chapter 34. Prophecy against the shepherds of Israel. Who were the... Now these are not physical 
shepherds. These are spiritual shepherds. But who who is he talking about here? Yeah, the leaders of the people, which would be the prophets, the priests, the kings, all the people, all the people who were in charge. Um, and he's saying woe against them in verse two. Woe, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding themselves. Should not the shepherds feed the flock? You eat the fat and clothe yourselves with the wool. You slaughter the fat sheep without feeding the flock. Now, Jesus, of course, took this up in the New Testament quite a bit, talking about how I am the good shepherd. Because these other people were just hirelings and when the wolf comes, what would they do? They just run away. Yeah, they were useless for shepherds. Um, then in verse 10, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against the shepherds and I will demand My sheep from them and make them cease from feeding sheep so the shepherds will not feed themselves anymore, but I will deliver my flock from their mouth so that they will not be food for them. And then in verse 23, Then I will set over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will feed them. He will feed them himself and be their shepherd, and I the Lord will be their God. And my servant David will be, David will be prince among them. I the Lord have spoken. Now David's been dead for over 500 years or, or thereabouts at this time. Um, What's he talking about? Jesus. Yeah, the son of David. He's the one that's going to be the shepherd. Verse 26, I will make them and the places around my hill a blessing, and I will cause showers to come down in their season. They will be showers of blessing. We have a song that talks about showers of blessing. This is where it comes from. Now in chapter 35, we have a prophecy against Mount Seir. What nation was in Mount Seir? The Edom was, yes. I told you we were going to come back to Edom. and This is in fact a prophecy against Edom. But he prophesies against the mountain that Edom was in because he's going to contrast it with another set of mountains in the next chapter. What's the other set of mountains? In, verse 36, in chapter 36. The mountains of Israel, yes. So this, this is a bigger picture. That I, I believe this is a bigger picture than just the little nation of Edom and the little nation of Israel. This is talking about the enemies of God's people trusting in their mountain in their mountain fortress versus God's people trusting in the mountains of God. And so in chapter 35 we have this prophecy against Mount Seir. Um, in verse 4, I will lay waste your cities and you will become a desolation. Then you will know that I am the Lord because you have had everlasting enmity and have delivered the sons of Israel to the power of the sword at the time of their calamity, at the time of the punishment of the end. And in verse 12, Then you will know that I, the Lord, have heard all your revilings which you have spoken against the mountains of Israel, saying, They are laid desolate, they are given to us for food. And so, in chapter 36, we have the prophecy to the mountains of Israel. And this is prophesying the future restoration of God's people and ultimately even the church. In verse 8, But you, O mountains of Israel, you will put forth your branches and bear your fruit for my people Israel, for they will soon come. Verse 17, Son of man, when the house of Israel was living in their own land, they defiled it by their ways and their deeds. Their way before me was like the uncleanness of a woman in her impurity. But in verse 21, But I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations where they went. Therefore, Say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am 
about to act, but for my holy name which you have profaned among the nations where you went. God is bringing the people back not because of their great righteousness, but because of His name. And, and He wants to exalt His own name. And so in verse 24, I will take you from the nations, gather you from the lands, and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you'll be clean. I will cleanse you and so on and so forth. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will move the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of the flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. Of course, this is looking forward to uh, the New Testament times and, and us. In verse 32, I am not doing this for your sake, declares the Lord God. Let it be known to you be ashamed and confounded for your ways, O house of Israel. And we have to understand the same thing applies to us. We have profaned God's name. God has not forgiven us for our sake, but for His own name's sake. And we need to glorify Him and not walk in pride. Well, we're going to finish the book next week. I appreciate everyone's help this morning.